Spliceast. Welcome to the Crafted by series from the Noah Not podcast. This is the third part of our five-part look at the Singapore music scene. You don't have to listen in sequence, but if you haven't heard the first two parts, it'd help you get up to speed. I structured these with what I hope is a good sense of flow as I explore five main areas: the music, the business, the performance, the media, and the reality. This is the performance episode. I'm Ken Delbridge. I'm a sound designer and audio editor, running a studio that caters to the advertising and corporate worlds. I arrived in Singapore in 1995 to run the audio post suite that serviced MTV Asia's various channels. This was when MTV was at its peak global influence. One hyper successful show at the time was MTV Unplugged, which brought musical acts back to basics by having them perform with acoustic instruments. It was a masterstroke of programming and led to multiple live acoustic albums under the MTV Unplugged banner. Eric Clapton's Unplugged album saw 26 million units, making it the best-selling live album of all time. The underlying premise was simple: songs should shine even without layers of studio production. And when something is live, it's magical. A studio album can't capture the energy of a live performance. Or the intimate communion between artist and audience. I'm going to look at how live performance is a big factor in musical careers today, and also the way digital disruption has forced changes to the way the industry works when it comes to live performances. To get this insight, I'm going to talk to a local venue that hosts 3,000 events a year, and to the man responsible for bringing some of the biggest names in the music industry to Singapore. You ready? Here we go. I see you trying to dry your tears out. It never ends, does it? This is Adia Tay, a singer-songwriter from Singapore. She plays live regularly at various venues in Singapore and has just released her first EP called Kintsugi. Kintsugi is actually a Japanese word. It actually means golden joinery. Um, so kintsugi is actually the art of taking broken pottery, repairing them with a、uh, gold or silver lacquer. In a sense, the philosophy kind of believes that once an item is broken and thereafter repaired, it then becomes more valuable than it previously was. Kintsugi actually is something that's very close to my heart. I feel like I'm a, I'm a piece of broken pottery myself. I do believe in the God that created us for a very specific and good purpose. We're all sort of like broken vessels through which light shines through. In the sense that you know, if I hadn't gone through that that period of brokenness and pressure and 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 whatnot, you know, that whatever good or gold there was in in me would not have come out. The songs on her EP have a rich sound and lush production, anchored by her voice. There are layers that reveal themselves on repeated listens, but in a live setting, the dynamic is very different. When you perform live, you actually get to connect with people on a way deeper level because the song does the connecting for you once it's out there, right? But live, it's it's heart to heart, person to person, right? And I also get a chance to sort of reimagine my songs. For local musicians, performing live is the most effective way of reaching their audience. And often the first step in building a career, long before social media became the always-on avenue of communication, getting on stage and performing was how acts introduced themselves to the world. 
For Singapore acts, many of them have performed at one venue with an iconic double dome building at the Marina Bay. Hi, I'm Akilesh. I'm working at the Esplanade as a music programmer for the last four years. The Esplanade is a not-for-profit art centre that has multiple spaces for performances, which include a world-class concert hall designed by the legendary Russell Johnson and a traditional horseshoe-shaped theatre that has hosted some of Broadway's biggest names. It retains a noble focus on supporting the performing arts in Singapore. Our mission statement is um, to entertain, engage, educate and inspire our communities. So community, if you look at communities, it means artists and audiences. Our biggest commitment is towards the locals. Out of maybe 3,500 events that happens every year, close to 70% of them are non-ticketed. And the reason why this is done is so that we can make our performances as a easily um, palatable way and not put a barrier of tickets. And uh, it's inviting those who want to explore more things in the arts. If you look at a whole year of programs, we have different themes that happen throughout the year. And I'm only talking about non-ticketed things because we have 13 festivals, ticketed festivals. The rest of them are non-ticketed. Every month, there's a free program series that's catered to that particular month. So let's say for instance, jazz, we have the series called Jazz in July. Like that, we have many different themes. All of it are non-ticketed. And the reason why we have these non-ticketed platforms is number one, to encourage local artists. Predominantly, the people who perform there are local artists, no matter what genre or what kind of um, art form it is. And secondly, it is to introduce certain rare art forms and certain rare practices to those who are walking through the doors. In a way, these kind of activities not only helps us in a way propagate the art, the artists and the audiences, it's also to help propagate art forms. Certain rare art forms or also stuff that we show. If you, if you know, there's this sacred music festival called Tapestry, where you, you get to hear a lot of different, throughout the world, there are many different forms that we don't get to see in Singapore. It is a free festival. One may ask, how is it financially viable to have it as a free festival? But that is our mission statement, to bring these kind of forms to the public in Singapore, where you don't get to um, witness it or experience it otherwise. In short, it is our mission statement is that, and we, we really do this just for the locals. One of the most popular festivals that Esplanade organises is Bay Beats, a three-day alternative music festival with local, regional and international acts who play across four venues at the Esplanade. One of those is the Outdoor Theatre, with the Singapore Business District skyline as a backdrop. See, Bay Beats was started off by this collective called Wake Me Up Music in collaboration with Esplanade. So at that point of time, for indie music bands, indie rock bands, there wasn't really a festival or a platform. When this started out in 2002, it was just a kind of an ad hoc thing that they started out. They wanted to do it for two to three years, but it kind of gained traction. And in the start, it was only plainly indie music. Now we see a lot of uh, metal, hip hop, uh, rock, all kinds of genres. At that point in time, it was only indie rock. Uh, over the years, uh, you can see how it's evolved. Because in a way, the scene has also evolved and Beats as a festival also has to have sustainability and longevity. So in order to do that, we have to keep in time with whatever is going around us. In 2007, 
Esplanade took on producing the entire festival. And that's when we had the first budding band program. It started out as a competition for young bands. Bands that usually get selected will end up playing at the festival. It started out as a competition. And in 2011, then we had a budding band mentorship program where selected bands will go through like a three or four month mentorship uh, sessions. And at the end of it, they will still end up performing at Esplanade. Usually we'll get four or five um, veterans from the local scene who would mentor these bands. They'll share all the experiences and so forth. Deciding which bands get to play during the three-day festival is never an easy choice and doubly difficult with new bands. In Singapore, there is a lot of very talented bands, really a lot of talented bands. We have to say no to a few, but it's, it really depends on the timing and their material and what the entire festival is made up of. Because I cannot have too many metal bands in one festival. I cannot have too many, uh, let's say, indie rock, electro-pop bands. So it also is a makeup of what is happening every day at each venue, how is it complementing. The programming then is the main point on how we curate a festival for babies, per se. As a tour destination, Singapore has played host to some of the biggest artists in the world. Major acts like Coldplay, Bon Jovi, Maroon 5, Eric Clapton, Rihanna, Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Duran Duran, Oasis. The list goes on. There's definitely an appetite for live music. And one man was behind getting all these acts to Singapore. I'm Michael Roach from Lushington Entertainments, um, a Singapore-based promoting company that was established in 1990. So we're coming very close to being granddads on our 30 years soon. And I also run as executive director the Formula One Singapore Grand Prix, which obviously has a huge musical content. And we run up to 50 performances a day throughout the circuit park on each of the race days each year. If you've met Michael, you'll know that he's first and foremost a huge fan of live music. Given his experience putting on concerts in Singapore and around the world, I asked him for his take on the concert scene here. Quite um, interestingly, although we have a smaller population and obviously an island city-state and can't compare in um, population or land size, Singapore punches way above its weight. And I'd say almost since 1990, we have covered more international acts and, and run more concerts than most of the other Asian hubs. We don't have a massive domestic music scene here, so I think there was always a bit more interest in the international music act, whereas Korea or Taiwan, the Mando pop, the Kanto pop, the J-pop and the K-pop, that, that, that brings in a huge domestic market that Singapore didn't necessarily have. So that has had some effect. We've been more always looking out towards a sort of global music and potentially more Western artists. But it was the ease of doing business here. When the indoor stadium was finished in 1990, it was one of the first purpose-built venues and it really helped establish the music scene. Cystic started at the same time, so we had a ticketing platform. The licensing was reasonably easy, and it was a safe country, it was English speaking. It was on the rise, so rising middle class and quite affluent. So it all helped to become a stop on the way either to Australia or New Zealand or Japan. And then it just grew from there. Typically, I'd say it would be very rare for an international act to tour Asia and not do Singapore. Sometimes they've only done Singapore, sometimes only Singapore and Hong Kong. 
sometimes they'll do six, seven dates through Asia. But typically, you'll always see Singapore on there. They like to come here. They, everybody loves the city. They always think we're in the middle of China till we get here and then realize that it's a great city and country with its own personality. And the word spread. I think the agents and the managers said, look, you should try Singapore. It's, we can sell tickets and it's a good experience and we can deliver the production. So I think that's how we built on our reputation. But it was hard earned and hard fought. And it's still quite precarious on the money front because it's so expensive to make the stop offs in Asia. Michael's the driving force behind the live music that has become a staple of the annual Formula One Singapore Grand Prix held every September at the Marina Bay Street Circuit. He's been a big supporter of local acts to perform during race weekends. We've been able to always put in a good number of local acts and then regional acts as well to mix it up. And it's worked quite well. And if we put on a Japanese band or a... Uh, an Indonesian band, or it also helps bring our, some of our regional business in. It, I mean, it's important that on a big stage like that, the uh, the local bands do get some exposure, and we try and be fair and rotate it round so that they're always featured. Surprisingly, Michael shared that often he has to reach out to acts to play at the F1 weekend, not the other way around. I'm surprised that more acts actually don't knock on our door. I mean, it's us reaching out to them. You know, you would have thought if you're, you're in a band here and you've been slogging at it for two, three years, you'd be turning up at our door and begging. And maybe they think, oh, it's impossible. But obviously, if they visit the F1 over the three days, they will say it's not impossible because there's local bands playing all over. But we don't really get badgered or pushed by them, you know, and we'd, we'd always be willing, willing to consider and look at acts. What Michael just said is not an invitation to barge into his office tomorrow morning and ask for a slot on the roster for this year's Singapore Grand Prix. No, absolutely not. Rather, make sure you or your band are super tight live and put together some material that showcases your stage performance and send that in via his company website. Michael believes in the talent of local musicians and he shared some insight on how local bands could improve their live shows. Sometimes acts are very good playing as you know a small bar and do the bars and they're kind of musicy clubs here but building a bigger stage presence and a stage show is quite different and one thing i do notice you know they're very static on stage sometimes they don't think that there's a need to do a maybe that's a singapore way that we're all a bit like that you know to to, to dress up a little bit more and so it's a little bit like a sunday afternoon out sometimes and i think bands that can work harder locally on on their stage set and how they're presented either with video content or costuming or effects and things like that i think it definitely helps it's a part of the live music market and i think they need to work a bit harder with that because they've got the talent it's just the way the talent is expressed performing has always been a good starting point for any band the Beatles famously played in Hamburg for two years before they rocketed to stardom. In the past, the playbook was, once signed to a label, make an album of songs and then tour in support of that album and drive sales. Bands also earned from concert fees and merchandise sales. Then MTV happened. The global reach of MTV brought artists to literally any point on the planet. With videos showing worldwide and promoting sales of physical CDs and radio airplay in every corner of the globe, it was a beautiful ecosystem that made artists rich and labels wealthy. As a top concert promoter, I asked Michael how MTV changed his industry. Certainly it did when MTV came in. It was a massive game changer is that people were spending almost more on the video than they were on the production of the al album or the single. 
and we all were just glued to MTV and it became one of the biggest brands in the world um, and a defining game changer for music. I think less so now. One of the unfortunate things about the live music market is that you can have 10,000 brilliant screaming fans in a venue, but holding a phone up for most of the show and video clipping that way. With the advent of YouTube and on-demand viewing of music videos, MTV's position as the tastemaker changed, and the rise of smartphones meant a generational change was taking place, and it would lead to more emphasis on live performances. YouTube took over a lot of what the MTV did. I think a lot of kids don't even watch the actual thing called a, a television anymore. They're watching everything on their mobile devices, and they're watching it more through Instagrams or the clips their friends are sending them. Videos still do have a place, but in a di- very different way, I think, than, you know, obviously topical at the moment is Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody. And I do remember when they made that video and it first came onto television. It was absolutely groundbreaking. I don't see the other acts spending that amount of money or time affecting a single and delivering it in that way. It's more that they are probably putting a lot of money into their stage set and effects, doing these huge landscapes on LED screens behind the band and putting effects in and things like that, or putting it more onto a YouTube format. The rise of peer-to-peer file-sharing services like Napster destroyed the market of physical sale of music to fans. For example, they could get a new Prince album for free, and as a royal purpleness, got diddly. Nothing. It took the labels years to come to terms with digital distribution. The immediacy of a concert, that connection of an audience to an artist, was immune to piracy. Like sporting events, live concerts became a valuable commodity. Bands would put together a mega show for each concert, and the tour could last for years. The highest grossing tour ever is U2's 360 tour, a 110 concert tour spread over three years that grossed over 9 million Sing dollars per show. In total, it grossed over 1 billion Singapore dollars. It's now common to see bands that haven't had a new album in a decade or more go on to tour and earn incredible sums. Look. I think if it's the Eagles or somebody reforms and these reunion tours, they have made much better money than they they would have had in their early career or mid-career. But it's not always the case. Nostalgia will always sell, it's just to what level. And we work with acts like Tom Jones or something. He puts on a wonderful show, he'll always have an audience, but it doesn't mean it's going to the $500 price point or something. It's not because they're an older band, they make that much more money but sometimes they do if it's a real reunion and nobody's seen them for 15 years or something, or a farewell tour or a reunion tour. I suppose a lot of us grew up from the 60s and 70s generation. That was the time of all the super groups. And if we lived with that, we want to see them just one more time. And if it's really good and they do make some money, they might say, can we do it just one, one more time, which a few of them have done. A lot of those acts and bands, they worked over five albums, 10 albums, 15 albums. There's so much recognizable repertoire that it should sell. We love to hear those songs that, you know, was a passage of our time and a marker of time when we were a teenager or our first romance and all of that. What's very interesting is in one cycle of five years, that particular act maybe tries it and it doesn't work. And five years later, it's huge. And that's the thing that always dumbfounds a little bit, a music promoter. It's all about timing and it's about cycles. And you can pull all the data and try and analyze it and all of that. But at at the end of the day, it's still about the gut feel and just things seem to be cyclical, you know? Uh, I mean, if they brought back a certain fashion that we all had in the 60s and 70s, it can be hit or miss. Suddenly, 
the new generation or we all start wearing that colour or thing again, but then it disappears again, you know? Sometimes it just doesn't work. So I suppose that's life. Live music is now a huge part of any band's game plan. And more than just being important as a revenue stream, it's the power of a musical act and an audience sharing. And I think that's the beauty of it. An artist that can get up on a big stage and really deliver and wow an audience. It's still breathtaking and it's still so rewarding when you, when you go to those shows that you just come out with that huge grin on your face. And I think that's why we've all been in the business, you know, a long time. It's definitely not for the money because it's a, a very tough business as a hit and miss. But the reward is when you've got a packed venue and everybody's singing along or happy and high-fiving each other as they leave or don't want to leave and we have to drag them out. I think that's a good reward, you know? I think, okay, that was worth it, you know? I mean, it's one of the happy things about life at the moment with so many dismal things on the news and all this. It's escapism and... And the kids, because of their mobile devices and all of this, they're just listening to thousands of hours of music all the time, you know? People say they're distracted and that, but then... Yeah, they're distracted and other things, but they've still got their, their earphones on listening and listening to music all the time. I think that's great, and I don't, I don't think that will ever go. For live music in Singapore, there's a music carnival coming up on June the 22nd called the Wabby Music Carnival. That's Wabby, W-H-A-B-B-Y, and it's a showcase for local musicians. Check out their website and do come and support local music. Thanks for listening to part three of our music industry review, part of our Crafted By series from the Know or Not podcast. It was written, recorded, and mixed by me, Ken Delbridge, with a special thanks to The Esplanade and Michael Roche of Lushington Entertainments for sharing their insight of Singapore's live music scene. Our next episode is on media, and we're going to talk to two creative directors, one from MTV Asia and one from radio. Eventually, MTV did come around to being more supportive of local stuff. Radio stations or or music stations don't do enough to promote local music, but it's not because they don't want to. It's because of how the the system is, is set up. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for free. Plus, you'll get notifications when we have new episodes. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a load of other places where you get podcasts. We'd love it if you give us a five-star review. It helps other people find our podcast. And if you have a friend who you think would like this podcast, please do recommend us. To learn more about our podcast, please visit knowornot.com. That's K-N-O-W-O-R-N-O-T.com. That's K-N-O-W-O-R-N-O-T.com.